0: So we're in our second week uh, in the book of Ephesians, and last week we took a long look at the history of the churches and and who Paul was writing to, um, this epistle, and looking back we took time to go through Acts and really just set up this whole uh, book. Um, and we took a look at the situation that was going on with the church, and, and I'll, I'll bring it up, and if you weren't here last week or listened to the message, it's okay, I'll hopefully just uh, pop in some information Um But really what we we took time looking at, what is this church in Ephesus and finding out this letter really is uh, not just for the church in Ephesus, uh, but for all the churches on that that revelation road, if you will. But spending time again this week, and I've been spending a lot of time preparing for Ephesians, uh, I really see why Dr. Lloyd-Jones took 37 messages to get through chapter 1. It is so overwhelming and so incredibly encouraging uh, all in once. And, and I, I almost considered just doing verses 3 through 5, um, but I think we'll pull it out. And And this is such a rich book. This is such a rich uh, uh, epistle that Paul has written. And and this is, again, for the church in Ephesus um, this church had not uh, experienced the troubles in colossae as colossae did and yet paul wanted to give them an outline to be prepared because again what was happening is is so much false theology and so much false teaching was coming in and paul while he's in jail is writing this this letter to all these churches to warn them that It's not going to be easy that there's this Gnostic belief, these false belief coming in, the secret knowledge belief people will try to sell you. I was reading at the time people were trying to sell, if you want to get into heaven, here is secret knowledge. And he was just trying to prepare them exactly what the gospel is. And again, this epistle is not addressed specifically to one church. Perhaps in the Bible that you're reading, there's a little asterisk by... Uh, Ephesians or Ephesus, and just saying it's through the churches in Asian Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And if you want to get an idea of the churches that he was speaking to, uh, there's a list in Revelations, the seven <laughs> churches. And here's a picture, just in case you're a, a map guy or gal, it just kind of shows you the route in which this letter ideally was going to be given. You'll see right there on your left, Ephesus, and then it would move up. And then come all the way down in in Laodicea, which is also, again, the seven churches in Revelation. So this was the bargain trade. This is where everything was happened. This is the Roman road. Um, So this letter would go. And since it first went to Ephesus, we called it Ephesians to make it difficult on ourselves, I guess. But really, if if we take a look at this, uh, and I think I mentioned this last week, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in Greek. It's this grand thesis statement of Paul to introduce the book in Ephesus. And it is all about Christ. The first three chapters is all about Christ. The last three chapters is all about the unity the church should have. Because Paul knows, given his experience and from the Holy Spirit, that the only way a church will survive is first have your doctrine of the gospel down correctly and second... Be united. A church that is not united, a body that is not united, will crumble underneath itself. So that's his whole focus. And and just up up front, you, you'll see the words predestination. I read the NLT. It says decided in advance. Um, various terms, foreknowledge, forenew. I will talk about that. But that is not the focus on what is taking place. Uh, here in the church and what Paul is is doing. So just just quickly, predestination, or decided in advance, has tripped up people for over 500 years. And it's sad. I think if we get caught up in these theological debates, we miss the truth of the hope in Christ. And granted, you're here, a non-denominational church, which is a a denomination all on its own. Um, Don't let anyone lie to you. Um, If you've come from a tradition or a background that took a solid stance on theological truth, you probably heard just the snippet of what I'm going to say between Calvinism and Arminianism and everything in between. Um, But I think if we take a biblical approach, if we look through Scripture... And not just one verse at a time. So if you're reading through the Bible, don't read just one verse. I know it's cool on the Bible app. One little verse. If, if you don't read the Bible, start there. But if you're reading one verse, read the whole chapter. And while you're at it, read the whole book. Read the Bible, okay? So that's what I'm saying. Just 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 read the whole thing. I do think that this that uh, Paul does a good job of explaining it. So when people say, where do you land, Dallas? I say, yes, it's both ends. We see it's both end. And again, there's been an argument over 500 years on, on predestination, yes or no, and how that works. And we miss out that we have been identified in Christ. And that's the hope. This word really, if you, this predestination or in advance, comes from the two Greek words that means predetermined, pre-known. And really, as I see it, it just shows that this grace that was given to the Jewish people is now offered to the Gentiles, and that was God's plan all along. And we are blessed by the adoption of Jesus Christ. I hope you're not... um, over the word of adoption that I used last week that Paul uses because it's over and over and over again and and truly the, this last month and a half of really focusing focusing in on this I have come to appreciate adoption in Christ way more than I ever had and um, been encouraged by the word of adoption by what many of you are doing so Uh, God's plan from the start was to rescue not only the Jewish people, but the Gentiles. And he had already decided that grace would be abound for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. That was his plan. This epistle was going out again to the churches that were full of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. People who formerly hated one another are now one big happy church. Oh, the joy of church. And our brothers and sisters who sit on the Calvinistic side of theology will look at this verse and other verses like Romans 9 and see the word predestination and and think and believe that it's decided in advance that God predetermined who would be saved and who would not. Okay? I don't agree, but I'm not going to fight over that with you. I believe it is God's plan to rescue all people, all those who call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I know, just like in scripture, he loved me before I first loved him, so he already decided that. Now I have an active part in it. See, and I also think that the reason why this word predestination or advance or whatever has become a source of argument is when Martin Luther gave his 95 thesis statement to the Roman Catholic Church, known as the Reformation, a main reason was to focus on God's grace. That's why he wrote it. Um... That was it. The, the Catholic Church at the time was not doing a good job of teaching that. They weren't teaching that at all. I, you can look back. And his, he got a hold of Scripture. And you can read his, his testimony along with John Calvin. Their testimony is they found that it was by grace alone. And they wanted people to know. And then I'm just guessing if you would have interviewed Martin Luther or John Calvin. Or go on the opposite side of John Wesley and his brother did you set out to have two different kinds of faith walks that argued with each other? They'd say, no, we're just trying to seek the Lord. That's just my background. and Or reading their background, that's just my opinion. So which is correct? Uh, the argument, what is it? But really, salvation is not earned. It is a gift from God. And with that, just I think it's also important to know that historical background, not only of when, when the Bible was written, who the original audience was, who was the author, what was the intent, what was going on. Whenever you're reading through the last several hundred years, any theologian, any pastor, know what was going on, know what his background was, what the people's background was, what the intention was. So in summary, is God sovereign? Yes. Since God is sovereign, does he know what is going to happen? Yes. Does that mean we don't have free will? No. No is there free will if there is free will does that limit God's power no how does it work I don't know <laughs> if someone says you are predestined okay what do you believe about Jesus Christ that's more important to me I just really see it as God is so in control he can be sovereign and he can accomplish his goal and his redemption his rescue mission through his son Jesus Christ is key and that's what it again. Again, this is not to knock someone who stands in a different, entirely different camp or other camps. I mean, for crying out loud, I went to a Baptist church, a Calvary Chapel, and a free Methodist church all in the same week. So I was very confused growing up. And it came down. Once I started reading the Bible for my own, I read that it is through Christ alone that I am saved. Okay? So, and... Um, Just another thing. I wasn't going to say much, but I'm saying much. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room discourse, after he washes their feet, he says this in John 13, 34, 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Okay. That's usually what we quote. Verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Oh. You mean we have to love people who have a different understanding? Yes. Now, I'm not saying get rid of the core tenets or, or, or any of that, the core beliefs. I'm not saying that. And, and uh, he doesn't say that at all. He just says, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. At least that's how I memorized it. He doesn't say your ability to debate theology will one day prove to the world that you are my disciples. I honestly think that a distraction that is used by the enemy, by Satan, is to get Christians to argue with one another on theology. And yep. it is a lot easier to argue with a fellow believer on theology than to reach the lost world. It's easier, I always, shocker hockey, it's always easier to have a scrimmage with your teammates than to go play against the other team. It's always, always is. So I just think that as we read this, As we talk about this, my hope is that we see that we were bought at a price. That Christ did it all. And that we should respond. And again, just historically, just this contact, it's so very important. (laughs) Paul is writing again to the church full of Jews and Gentiles who are believing in Christ, trying to come together and share the good news and laying their baggage at the front door. That's what we should be doing. And it's hard, because sometimes I like to hold on to my baggage. And then sometimes I don't want you to know my baggage unless I hit you over the head with my baggage. But one of Paul's primary goal in this epistle was to let the churches know God is so gracious that he sent his son for all of you, and that you were bought at a price, and now get along. And again... um, one Baptist uh, pastor that I had growing up said the word predestination should give believers encouragement in their walk and not something to warn off people who don't believe. And then just just quickly, just because I've had conversations this week with some people who are young in their faith just to hear uh, just a little bit more a description of at least how I, I use it. I describe it as this, the plane that we get on has a predetermined destination. Are you coming or not? Are you going to get on or not? And once you're on the plane, there is expectation of you to live or to fly, not be crazy in the plane. There's expectation. And no, will you be perfect? Absolutely not. Is God gracious? Yes. But all are welcome who believe in Jesus Christ. So, um... I know that's just touching the surface if if you want to talk about it. I love talking about it, but I won't argue with you. Um, It's senseless. Uh, If you disagree, that's okay too. Disagreement is really healthy for the church, as long as it turns into a fight. Um, It's not worth it. And uh, and ultimately, um, what Paul is writing here is Christ chose you and there's an expectation to be like him and we are to reject we reject that our salvation is based on works so in other words works are not the road to salvation but the road to Christ likeness is what i wrote down so we should be becoming more like christ so with all that to say Welcome to Ephesians 1, verse 3. And what Paul is doing after his little title, his little greeting, 3 through 14, one long run-on sentence. If, they, if, the original, if the translation into English, it would drive everyone who is a grammar nut, nuts. Okay? It would just drive you crazy. That's why it's broken down. But this is his thesis statement. And, and, and what he's trying to say is, you are all welcome. Both Jew and Gentile are welcome in this church. And be prepared so I'm going to drop down to verse 7. We'll, we'll jump around just a touch. But in verse 7, he says, He, being God, is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased your freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He purchased our freedom. Purchase our freedom... Uh, or perhaps in, in the New King James ESV, New American Standard, uh, you have been redeemed or the redemption was at a cost. This is a tie back to adoption, which I mentioned last week. Just quickly, the Roman adoption at that time is, looked like this. A Roman dad could kill his natural born son or daughter without any consequences if they disrespected him, humiliated him. A long list of anything. Immediately, the Roman father could kill his son or daughter. And there wouldn't be anything done. As long as um, he had a purpose. And all he had to say is he disrespected me. Again, I mentioned last week, see uh, the prodigal son. The greatest disrespect. That father had the right to actually kill his son. But an adoption... To cost tons of money, took several trips to the courts, a lot of money to, uh, to pay to the judge. It was a long process. The more I was reading about this week, it could take up to several years for an adoption. And once a child was adopted, the, the father could no longer kill that adopted child. That adopted child had more rights than the natural child. Also, the father could not write out... An adopted child out of an inheritance. You were automatically protected. This is that word redemption. So when Paul says that he purchased our freedom or this redemption, everyone there reading this letter would tie it back to an adoption, specifically this Roman adoption with so much security, so much privilege. Specifically, Paul is using a phrase that the original audience would understand even a little bit further. This redemption means it was a cost. You had to pay for it. A purchase that is made to get someone out of slavery specifically. So not only is it an adoption, but it is you are adopting not just someone. You are adopting someone who was once a slave. Redemption means, technically means to buy someone back. It's related to, the, there's two words in Hebrews and then it's translated to Greek. It's slavery due to financial issues or slavery due to a military takeover. But specifically, a family member has bought someone back. But even more, being bought back by a relative, we see that through Ruth. And you can go and read Ruth. It's, it's I'm going to purchase my, for example, my brother's son out of his financial slavery or out of this military slavery, I'm not only purchasing that freedom, I am adopting him. He is my own. So what Paul is saying, God paid a price. He didn't just simply forgive or cover up. He paid a price. Now, it extends even further. If we were Living at this time, reading this letter, we would have also, off the top of our head, known the Jewish tradition, precept, or rule about canceling a debt. Uh, According to the cancellation rule, once every seven years at the end of the sabbatical year, a declaration is made that cancels all outstanding loans and allows borrowers to start a new page in their financial lives. So all the people there sitting there, Jews and Gentile, would know that this was a rule. Jewish people to Jewish people. So quickly, Deuteronomy 15, one through 3 reads this. And this is the outline of the rule. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbors or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. This release from debt, however, applies only to your fellow Israelites, not to the foreigners living among you. So there was a joke, as I was reading through some of the older Jewish tradition, there was a joke, it's called Good Humor and Sense, from the first century, saying it would be wise not to loan money the day before the seven years is over. <laughs> so, But what we're seeing here is, is even the Gentiles at this time would have known that this was how the Jewish people were told to respond to loans. Every seven years, everyone, the debt must be canceled. The difference between canceled and purchase is canceled means it's ignored. Purchased means it's paid for. You're seeing the ties to what Paul is trying to say? Your debt of sin is not just simply canceled. It's been paid for. It costs something. That's where we get the seven-year outline in which we follow for bankruptcy. It's just on and on again. Like again, we see this. See, Paul here is connecting a couple of parts here to this old Jewish tradition because can you imagine there's the Jewish people who are Christian, the Gentile people who are now Christian, they're coming together. The church is only, it looks like, roughly eight years old. We're eight years old. Uh, So there's still some old tension. There would have been Gentiles who said, hey, I still owe you money because we're, not under, we're under the old covenant, uh, this awkwardness. But what Paul is trying to connect, one, is that forgiveness of debt is not just for Jewish people. It's for Gentiles too. Second, Paul is also saying that originally the forgiveness of debt only covered the previous seven years. After your debt was forgiven, you were able to rack up all this debt again. Redemption, this price was paid that covers the sin, the past, the present, and future. So he's using language to show that this is not just a quick fix. This is a forever fix. That you are forgiven through his blood to take away. Again, using language that people would understand. Blood forgiveness, the price was not only forgiven or canceled or ignored. It was purchased, just like the slave... Uh, being bought. So the day of atonement going back to the Jewish tradition, day of atonement once a year, the high priest would kill a goat and then it would, it extended a little bit more. The day of atonement, there would be a public gathering. People would bring two goats, one to be sacrificed at the altar and one goat would be sent away to show that the sins were gone, would no longer come back. The problem is, is that the goat they would send out to the wilderness the goat kept walking back about three, four days later, which really ruined the metaphor. Your sins will never come back. Oh, there's that goat coming. So during Jesus' time, what the, what the rabbis ended up doing is throwing the goat off the cliff. <laughs> that guy's not coming back, right? But what, what this language is, what these Jewish people had been experiencing is every year we had to be forgiven of our sins, sacrifice, atonement. At that moment, our sins were forgiven. Every seven years, we could forget a debt, but it was ongoing. There was never any security that, it, that we were secure. And it is not simply a forgiven of debt. It was a debt that was paid for. This is adoption. If the Jewish people were the natural children, and everybody else was the adopted children. And now as we consider uh, verse 12 and 13, who is this for? It reads, verse 12 of Ephesians 1, it says, God's purpose was that we Jews, Paul is identifying himself as a Jew, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. This is still, if you want to know what God has called you to do, it's to bring praise and glory to him. He said, so first it comes to the Jews, and in verse 13, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the gospel, or the good news, that God saves you, and when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own. We'll stop there. So Christ did this for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. This adoption, this purchase, this... So, key to this relationship. So, just let's look at all of the words that are associated with adoption here. Let's move back up to verse 11. So, after he says, at this, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. Go back to verse 10. And this is the plan at the right time. He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. This is talking about what Christ has done and when Christ returns. Now, verse 11, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance. That's our adoption. Remember Roman adoption. Once you once you were adopted, you can never lose your inheritance. You were in from God for he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. Then if you drop down to verse 13, you'll see uh, at the end, it says, and now Gentiles have also learned this truth, the good news of the gospel, that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. This identification, uh, maybe in your translation in uh, ESV, uh, New King James says, marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh this this understanding was a mark, uh, a wax seal at the time. You probably know this already. There was a seal. There was a special ring or a special press. And this gave you the right of the person that sent you. you I have my letter. Here's the identification. Here's my identity. What Paul is saying here is once you come to Christ, once you have been realized you have been purchased, once you have... Earn your, uh, once you've received your inheritance, you've now earned this wax seal. A wax seal would mark ownership, identification, it identified whoever uh, um, contained this. Uh, but he says, What are you actually sealed with? You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So here, Paul is already talking about God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and now he's saying, As a guarantee, as a marked seal, as a passport, as your license, as your reminder, as your down payment, actually is what he's saying, you have the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. So, so again, if we are first century readers, we're reading this, we understand that that He's talking about adoption. We're understanding that we were bought at a price, that this is for everyone who calls on the name. And now when we read that we have been marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit, if we were first century, we would understand that God has paid the down payment for our salvation. Uh, Perhaps modernize it. It's an engagement ring. Guys, when you buy, when you bought your wife's a ring, regardless of how much you spent, you bought it. You gave it as a promise. Jewish uh, custom was that bride's uh, father would receive a dowry, a payment. The whole reason why is saying, I want to marry your daughter. Here's all the money up front in case I die. Basically, I'm paying up front the life insurance in case something happens to me. I'm making that payment. It is a guarantee. It is a deposit into their account meaning God sent his Holy Spirit as a mark to set out to promise, to reassure us that we have this guarantee. That's why he says in verse 14, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he has promised and he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise him and glorify him. So just considering this adoption, this this mysterious plan in which which Paul uses again in verse nine, it says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan at the right time. There's been argument about what Paul meant about this mysterious plan. Paul uses this word in Greek, mysterious, and it means 11 different things. I don't know what... Use other words, Paul, please, because it's confusing. But what he's talking about here specifically is at the right time, God came. And he sent his son. At the right time, he will return. And we can be reassured of that. So when, when we're considering this inheritance, when we're considering this guarantee, this purchase, uh, this reminder... Kind of just considering this a little bit, when the kids were young, I don't know about your kids, but um, they would say, Daddy or Mommy, look at me, look at what I'm doing, look at me, 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 look at me. No one, no one, kids, (laughs) and teenagers still do that? Any young, anyone in their 40s still call their mom, look at me, look at me, look at me, no, okay. So just wanting this attention, uh, the reason they're drawing your attention is they feel that you're looking away, you're not looking at every little thing. One of the three of our kids, who I will not mention by name to protect their identity, um, would say a complete sentence and say, okay, say it back to me. And if you did not get every word right in the right order, this person that belongs to me would say it exactly the same to make sure that I was paying attention and not only that I was paying attention, but I was able to repeat back. Why do kids do that? Or some variation. They want assurance that what they're saying to you matters and that you're paying attention long enough from the start to the finish. So, even as you can consider this a little bit more, whenever uh, going on from that, they'll say, you know, look at me, or do you love me? Do you love me, dad? Do you love me, mom? Yes, of course you know I love you. How much do you love me? Anyone ever get that question? Maybe get that from your spouse. How much do you love me? Why why is this a question? Perhaps maybe that's not even a a, a statement (laughs) that you use. Do you ever wonder how much someone loves you? Do you ever wonder what they would be willing to do Even when the kids, how much do you love me? Do you love me to the moon and back? I love you to Pluto and back. Pluto's not a planet. You know, just this how much, show me, prove to me, reveal to me how much you love me. And yes, it's a fun game or it's an annoying game depending on how long it takes place. But there's in us, I would suggest each and every one of us, as we look at the gospel As we consider our relationship with Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ, at some point, even if we've been walking with the Lord for a long time, we could fall into the trap of thinking, maybe God doesn't love me. I know this is true, especially if you sin or sin again, or that one thing that you tend to go back to, you ask, does God love me? Do you still love me? I mean, Dallas just gave an analogy about getting on the plane. There's a destination. I'm on the plane, but I am making a mess in this plane. Do you love me? To which we all want to say yes, and we believe it. But those times that we're circling back and thinking, do you really love me? Again, this is going back to the mark seal of the Holy Spirit. Are you marked by Christ? You know, when a, for a long time, you're, you can make fun of me. For a long time, I collected stamps when I was a kid. I know that's an old person thing. I did it because my grandfather did. And um, after my grandparents died, I had this one really old stamp that my grandfather's dad gave him. And it was a letter and it was like my prized possession that I, I had. I also had this um, cigar box, like when I was set. I didn't smoke cigars. You know, you know the old wooden ones when you slide open. Okay thank you fellow heathens, but when you slide open and you, you hit everything in it, that's where I held it. And anytime that I was feeling like, man, I sure miss my grandfather. Or, I wonder what it was like. I, I or, or, or just, I had this stamp. I had the stamp collection that he started, starting with the first stamp he gave me. And it was like a prized possession. And, and anytime I was, I, I just felt like, man, I wish I could hear from grandpa again. And that would be neat. And Man, I really need that assurance. i just go through it, a collection. And and it became, really, to be honest with you, an idol. That's where I would go whenever I was feeling insecure or bad or sad or angry. Well, fast forward, when I was 25 years old, and I was working for good old Kia Motors, and I had it in a backpack in my trunk. I was weird. I carried it with me and I left it in the trunk and that car was going to be crushed so you know whenever you all of a sudden realized uh oh so you know I called everything I said where is the car they're like it's still on the truck it's on the transport it's going to be crushed this guy jumped in another car chased after it and I got there where's the car sorry we crushed it yesterday oh how do I know that my grandfather cared for me. How do I know all of these things? I don't have them anymore. That's why these things that we are holding on to, that's why Christ knows that in our identity, in our fluctuation of who we are, this guaranteed of the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. It's there. You can't leave it in the trunk in your backpack in a cigar box. You know, you're know, you not leaving this. This is, this is what Paul is setting up to point to You've been bought with a price. You've been adopted. Um, Just like the Roman fathers, they're not going to disregard you. How much more is your inheritance? For the Gentiles, they're like, finally, finally, we're in. Someone cares. A God cares for us. The Jewish people who are believers or connecting the dots. You mean this is the same inheritance that you promised our forefathers about the promised land? That you will never leave us or forsake us. See, these two groups of different backgrounds is coming together and all marked with the Holy Spirit in us. Just quickly, just closing off this this theme, this thought of adoption. The first time as a young adult when uh, adoption became more on my radar uh, was uh, Natalie and I had close friends who were walking through adoption this was, I don't know, almost 20 years ago. And uh, they were walking through this adoption. They were trying to adopt this little boy and this little girl. And got had a real up-close personal view of the whole process. And uh, one of the things that just surprised me was that they had to take CPR and medical training and all of these classes and all of this. And at the time, Natalie was... Um, we didn't even have kids of our own. And, I, and just watching people just have kids. And I was just thinking, you have to do so much in order to adopt a child. You can't just have a child in order to, ha- to adopt a child. And, and, and uh, they were close friends of ours, like I said. And it was just so hard to, oh, here's the date, not the date. Here's the child, not the child. Any of you have gone through the process, you know this. And it was through this process of adoption, once they brought home their little boy and then little girl, and they were all trained, and they had a mark sealed by the judge saying that they're the parents and everything. It was through this process of adoption that they became Christians. It was through this process in which whenever they were sharing all the ups and downs, and I remember the first time that we met them, that the kids that they had were no longer foster kids. They were their kids. They were purchased. There wasn't anything they would do. And they were talking about through this whole process, they realized reading through all the times it talked about adoption. They were looking for anything anywhere that talked about adoption. And, of course, their Google search landed on adoption through Christ. And it was through adoption that they realized we paid so much and did so much to take our kids. How much more has our Father in Heaven done for us? And it's pretty neat. They're on a journey where they're helping other people adopt kids, and it's been so wonderful to see. And this is the outline, this one long sentence that Paul opens up saying, you have been adopted It was purchased. You have an inheritance. You have been identified in Christ. You are guaranteed that He will fulfill because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And you have been purchased to be His own. And that is His opening line to get the people in Ephesus and the other churches on that road to take a look at. Wait a minute. What should, my, what should my response, what should our response be? Knowing this truth, believing this truth, that our f- sins are truly forgiven, not just wiped clean. So as we continue on in this series, I do invite you to continue to pray for this series. I invite you to read through Ephesians. You'll be uh, blessed so much to uh, have read in advance What's going on? But just really, just think of this theme that you've been adopted by someone who wants you, who chose you, who loves you on purpose. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time and for your love. and You're so rich in kindness and grace that you purchased our freedom, our redemption with the blood of your son, and you forgave our sins. Lord, will you help us not get wrapped up in Theology that creates a division. But will you help us hold on to theology that has the core truths of who you are. and That salvation is um, through grace alone, through what Christ did on the cross. That you sent your one and only son that whoever shall believe in him will have eternal life. Will you help us confess our sins and come to you. Will you help us um, hold on to this marked seal that we have in the Holy Spirit, one that can't be left in a trunk, in a backpack, Lord. That you dwell in us, Lord. Will you help us uh, share this good news, Lord. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who is struggling, thinking, (laughs) just like kids, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How do I know that you love me? We know that Will you, will you bring comfort to, for them to know that you paid the full price? That you deposited your spirit in us because of what Christ did on the cross for us. So Lord, as we sing a couple more songs, will you just uh, speak to us? Will you encourage us, Lord? Lord, thank you for uh, loving us so much that you just don't leave us. That you hold on to us even when we don't. So we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.